Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations. My name is Kaylee Kukla, and I've spent more than a decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of three, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my professional knowledge coming from over a decade of work experience with my master's degree in early childhood special education and combining it with real mom life, not just the theory, to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations and you'll gain practical tools that will inspire you to get to the heart or the core of your child's behavior and make simple yet impactful changes. So let's dive in together. Hello and welcome to another Core Parenting Conversation. And today we are talking about one of my favorite topics. It's something that I'm really proud of my work around it. And I'm really passionate about it because I think it's something that is widely misunderstood when people talk about children's behavior. And that is a type of tantrum that is not the traditional type of tantrum people usually think about when they hear the word. If you have studied child development or read a developmentally appropriate parenting book, you are probably aware that a child under stressed or who feels threatened slips into their downstairs brain or their safety brain where their parasympathetic nervous system is activated. And so who you're reading, what you're reading will use may use different language, but it's really referring to this the same neurophenomenon. The behaviors most often associated with the situation are things like aggression, hitting, scratching, throwing, pushing, screaming, and tantruming. <laughs> If you want more information about those individual behaviors, because I understand those can be tricky, especially if your child is a strong, what I'm going to call red tantrumer, you can head to the previous Behavior Bite series in this podcast because I cover these behaviors in episodes 22 through 29 and 48 through 53. Today, though, we're going to talk about something a little different. These behaviors, whether they be downstairs behaviors, the hitting aggression, or what we're going to talk about today, the blue, can happen in response to a perceived threat. So to a child, a threat could be a no in response to what they want, or a peer simply getting too close to them or their toys. It's not about what makes sense to our adult rational brain. It's about what registers in their brain or their neurological perception, aka their neuroception, a term that comes from the polyvagal theory by Dr. Stephen Porges and made more popular, at least to me and I think a lot of parents, uh, by Dr. Mona de la Hook. Okay, so that's about as nerdy as we're going to get. I'm going to finish the thought and then we're going to jump into some tangible, practical action steps for you. When a child perceives a threat, whether it makes sense to us or not, they shift into their downstairs brain, which is their fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. The explosive aggressive tantruming behavior fall into the red zone or the fight category and the red zone of regulation. But what about the flight, freeze, or fawn, which is another way of just saying surrendering responses? 
these behaviors are often missed and overlooked because they're not as disruptive, right? They're not going to actually harm anybody like a block being thrown might or a bite might, right? Oh, that was a lot of rhyming. That was like Dr. Seuss. Sorry about that. (laughs) But anyway, these behaviors aren't as disruptive and not as much of a threat. So they generally can be overlooked, especially in classrooms, because oftentimes teachers are juggling and or parents with multiple kids are juggling multiple behaviors and they're going to go towards the threat first. And maybe the child who is freezing, fleeing, fawning may not be as urgent as the other child. These behaviors look like hiding. So if a child runs and hides under their bed or into their room or under the table or under a chair, running away, ignoring, avoiding eye contact. So that can be more subtle, but maybe they shut down. They don't look at you. They become unresponsive even when you're asking, you know, what do you want for dessert? Like a question that you think they would generally be pretty responsive to. (laughs) So those are what I call a blue tantrum. Oh, and the other thing, ragdoll. If you've ever had a child go limp and you try and pick them up and they're just like dead weight, you know, the ragdoll sensation. I worked with a boy one time, instead of becoming whiny, aggressive, or melting down over a transition, which were extremely difficult. It was one of the number one things his parents wanted support for. He would just go limp and melt on the floor. Even if it was time to go outside and play on the playground, he would just go limp and lay on the floor and not get up. Transitions were very, very overwhelming for him. So he was slipping down into the fight, flight, freeze response. And previously, teachers had perceived him as just being difficult and this just being noncompliant. Actually, this is an example of a blue tantrum. You won't find blue tantrums in any published literature that I know of. I came up with the phrase after reading Dr. Mona De La Hook's book, Beyond Behaviors, and using that information to inform my lens while personally experiencing repeated blue tantrums at home. Then I noticed similar behavior patterns with clients. The color scheme of regulation is largely inspired by Leah Keeper's uh, work zones of regulation. While this isn't the exact application of her framework, she does use the color coding system to help identify emotions. So there's red, yellow, green, and blue. And it's a popular social emotional learning tool in classrooms. I've just taken it and applied it directly to help explain behaviors and needs and nervous system phenomenons to parents. So I've taken amazing work by other people and just kind of morphed it into a teaching tool for my use. In my experience, blue tantrums are more difficult to support because the disconnection is so intense. Think about a child tantruming. They're throwing out strong energy. We can respond to that energy. They're making a lot of bids, even if it's yelling, throwing, crying, screaming. There's some sort of messaging to work with there, right? We can reflect to them what they're saying, doing. We can adjust our body. They're giving us feedback and we can adjust based on their feedback. Blue tantrums, (laughs) the child shuts down. They go internal and we don't have anything to respond to. It's like trying to make something out of nothing. It's like trying to keep rhythm, but there's actually no music playing. The most common response 
I see to these blue behaviors, like hiding behind a parent or a child avoiding eye contact or curling up in a corner or turning away to a guest, refusing, in quotations, refusing to greet someone, hiding under a table. Adults typically try and conjole the child with commands. Like, come on out of there, come say hello, or look at me when I'm talking to you, answer me. Most of the time, these commands cause a child to burrow further down. I think of a rabbit in its burrow just going deeper down the tunnel, right? Because that's a flight response for a bunny rabbit. Or it can even push the child out of the blue tantrum and into a huge explosive red tantrum. So I hear this often from parents is that they first go through these shutdown behaviors and the parent with the best of intentions tries to snap the kid out of it and then the child just freaks out and explodes. Why? Because these behaviors aren't just about a child feeling shy or their attempts to be difficult or rude or because they just don't want to, which they're so often interpreted as those things. These blue behaviors are a result of a hyper aroused nervous system that is triggering a freeze or flight response. When we see these behaviors in a different lens, we can respond to the child instead of the behavior. So here we go. We're getting to the core, which is centered on relationships. All these things I'm going to talk about really strengthen your relationship with your child. And we're going past the surface level stuff. What does this mean? We can help the child feel safe, seen, so that these overwhelming situations become less overwhelming over time. With the experience of supported regulation through these situations, the child will begin to feel more confident in their ability to handle them. It's simply practice and brain maturation. So this is not a quick fix. I don't promise quick fixes ever on this podcast, but it's opportunities to practice, become more confident and build skills while maintaining and building and strengthening your relationship over time. The more we practice something, the smoother it gets, the more comfortable we become with it. So how do we do that? Let's get to the practical rubber meets the road strategies. I've looked into so many different resources to see what people have to say about blue behavior. And what I learned is there's not a lot of information out there. Most of the dysregulated advice, so the downstairs brain advice, the safety seeking advice, whatever we want to call it, they focus on red behavior. So the aggression, the screaming, the lashing out. And I think this may be because blue behaviors fly under the radar and are nuanced in how a child can be supported. Because of the lack of information out there, I decided I needed to do this podcast because I've actually become really confident and I'd like to think skilled in supporting blue tantrums. I'm typically pretty successful at creating some engagement with the child even after they've shut down. So I'm going to give you three of the main points to think about that really are at the forefront of my brain when I approach this situation. And the most important thing while I'm explaining these is you need to think about your child. They have to be personalized to your child and their temperament and their likes and dislikes. And, and we that has to be top of mind. Trying to prescribe one general script or action or breathing exercise to help every child would actually lead to more frustration and undermines the main thing I'm going to talk about today, which that'll make sense. 
This core conversation is made possible through Kaylee's core membership program. If you find yourself soaking up the information in this podcast and others, but still grapple with questions like, how do I get my kid to listen? What happens when I try that and it doesn't work? Or if you just crave like-minded and like-hearted parents who are also on this wild parenthood journey, you found your place in core. I take the theories and strategies and I'm constantly adapting them and applying them to real life through monthly deep dives, handouts, workbooks, and live Q&As. So if you want to take your parenting with intention to the next level, or you just need more support, check out CORE at www.kayleekukla.com backslash C-O-R or head to the show notes for the link. First, go slow. I think low and slow, go slow, talk less. Okay. I like the the rhyming, obviously, (laughs) because it's easy to remember. A sense of urgency or pressure is only going to further arouse the nervous system. Think about when you're feeling rushed. I even talk about parent or use the example of when you have to go to the bathroom, you have a full bladder, that sense of urgent, that physiological urgency, and then your kid stops you on the way to the bathroom. You know, it might be a little more escalated than usual. That sense of urgency triggers our threat detection system. Slowing down relieves that pressure. The other purpose of slowing down is to give us, the adult, an opportunity to attune to our child. What does attunement mean? It means to align ourselves with our child. The analogy I use to explain this is tennis, because that's a sport that resonates with me, or pickleball or ping pong. Pick your favorite racket sport (laughs) that you can visualize. We serve a connection bid. It can be as subtle as a look, a gentle touch, getting close to them a noticing statement. Then we watch the person without judgment. And I say person because you don't only, you can do this with more than just children. You can do this with adults as well. You watch them, observe them without judgment, with openness and curiosity about where they are going to return the ball. So when I play tennis and I hit a ball over the net, I serve a ball over the net, before the other person hits the ball, run to the other side of the court, stand there and get my racket ready before I even have a read of where the ball could be going, chances are the person on the other side is going to hit it to the opposite side of the court that I'm standing. The rally is going to be over. There's going to be no back and forth exchanges because I rushed to return the ball before even noticing where it was going to go. Same with these connection bids, these back and forth bids with our child. We have to slow down so we can follow their return. That's what creates the back and forth. This is what's meant by child-led. An exaggerated example of this is an exchange I had years ago with a six-year-old autistic boy, and it was my first time meeting him. He really liked to draw on this roll of paper that was hanging on the wall in his playroom. His parents told me that he never liked them drawing on it with him and showed me. Dad went up to the boy who was already drawing on his paper and said, oh, let's draw together. I'll get a marker. And dad picked up the marker, took the cap off and got close to the paper. So well-intentioned, nothing wrong with what he's doing. This is not about right and wrong. This is about attunement with your child. So dad did what he thought would 
entertain the child, right? I'm joining him in this activity. I'm trying to connect with him. Nothing wrong with this. The child freaked out. He went from the blue zone. So he went, this was one of his comfort zone activities in the zone and being in his own little world and not really acknowledging or responding to us, the adults in the room, to red. And he started screaming. The parents, understandably, became embarrassed and upset about his outburst. It's really hard when you're meeting someone for the first time and your kid freaks out. It's really hard not to feel embarrassed. That's a really natural response to the situation. But of course, I'm there. I'm not here to judge. And this makes total sense to me. So I tried. I went up and I just sat next down to the boy. That was my first serve. And I waited. He returned my serve by looking at me. That was his bid. I decided to return his hit and narrated a bit of his drawing up and down, up and down. And I went very slow. He looked at me again. So then I said, because that was his return. So then I lobbed the ball back, right? I said, huh, I wonder if there's a color I could use. He looked at me and he pointed to the markers. So I put my hand on a marker without picking it up. He paused and continued coloring. I segmented these actions one by one, picking up the marker, taking the cap off, hovering over the paper without actually touching the paper with the marker. Then I put the marker to paper. Then I started coloring in my own area. And then I started coloring in his area. His parents couldn't believe it. It was the first time he'd ever shared that coloring space with someone and his first time meeting me. This is why I say it's so important to go slow and probably slower than what you think. And can we always go that slow that I went with this child? No, I know that's not realistic all the time. That is just a very exaggerated example to show how we can slow down our bids and really try and read our child and adjust to the feedback they're getting. He kept giving me green lights when he kept looking at me and watching me. I'm going to give other examples of if he would have turned away, if he would have grunted, if he would have narrowed his eyes, I probably would have stopped right where I was and either waited or backed up. He wasn't ready for that. But I was able to read him because I was going slow. Also, when we go slow, the child has time to process what we're doing and their nervous system has time to adapt. So your actions don't feel so rushed and trigger their threat detection system. The next strategy, I want to think of ways to woo them. And yes, woo them is actually the name of the strategy. It's very technical. Instead of getting into their space, which can register as a threat and cause them to buckle down into the blue zone even more, stay in your space and make it inviting, safe, and engaging. So this is very different than the first example I just gave you. I went and I got in his space, right, and and did it very slowly and created this back and forth. If the child either isn't open to that or maybe you can't, drop everything and go do that with one child. This is a really helpful strategy. And this is probably the one I use the most in my house. And I use it often professionally as well. So what does woo them mean? How I do this depends on the situation and the child. This is why knowing your child is so important. What do they find interesting? What is calming to them? How do they enjoy connecting? Often I narrate what I'm doing. It's think alouds as a teacher or 
in parenting books, they also often call it narration. So it's narrating what I'm doing or noticing with a focus and, and focusing on what I think they'll connect with. For example, both of my boys love to help doing different kitchen activities. I've noticed that this can be a really simple and effective way to connect and engage them constructively when they're spiraling into dysregulation during the witching hour, whether it be sibling spats or just like whining, tantruming, shutdowns, because, you know, it's the end of the day. My attention has shifted away from them. Their blood sugar is starting to crash. All the things happen during witching hour, right? So I may start narrating an activity I know they enjoy. For example, oh, I had the lettuce out of the fridge and I need to make a salad tonight. Huh. I need to find the salad spinner. Hmm, which cabinet is it in again? Pause in this narration. Of course I know where the salad spinner is. Of course I know I can do this on automatic pilot without narrating out loud. The point is I'm trying to woo my child here. So I'm asking these questions to myself. So I'm not asking the child directly, which puts the demand on them. I'm just inviting them into the situation by thinking out loud. Okay, so hmm, which cabinet is in it again? Oh, right, here it is. Okay, I got it. I'll cut up the lettuce. Let me get it out of the bag. I'm gonna start chopping it up and then it'll be ready to rinse and spin. I'll go slowly narrating. It sounds pretty natural to my children because I do this all the time. And I'm inviting them in. I'm enticing my child into this. That can help them. It's a non-threatening invitation to engage with me, which can help pull them up out of the blue zone where they're either uh, mm, just grunting and turning away from their brother, driving me nuts in the other room because the grunts ugh, don't like those. And those are still hard for me sometimes. And then I'm getting them into connection and engagement without pressuring them into that. I'm just throwing it out there and inviting them. I'm seeing, I'm throwing out random serves with the ball to see which one they'll return. Sometimes I will explicitly do this through an invitation. Hey, I need to spin the salad. And I'll pause, 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 pause. And oftentimes that's enough. My child will jump up and be like, oh, I want to do it because they love hitting the button and spinning it. If they don't, I might ask them directly, would you like to help? Remember, though, sometimes if the child is already pretty dysregulated, the question can be yet another demand, so they won't reply. That's why the think alouds and narration can be just as inviting with very low pressure. I use this strategy often with children during my first visit in their home or classroom. If I notice the child is sending up blue flags when I arrive, like avoiding eye contact, hiding behind parents, turning their body away from me, totally ignoring me even when I walk up to their group of friends. I don't make a bid directly towards them right away. That'd be too much pressure. Just me being in their space is sending them into their downstairs brain and arousing their threat detection system. So why would I want to intensify that? Instead, I focus on engaging with the parents or classmates, and I intentionally discuss things that I think the child may be interested in. I'll often discuss my children and their likes, interests, activities to pique the other child's interests. I did this the other day with a client who hid behind her dad when I came over. So when they opened the door, she was already hiding. So blue flag. And then she ran into her room. Big blue flag. Her parents, so well-intentioned and wanting to teach her politeness, tried to command her to greet me, which resulted in a door slam. Here's the thing. 
Manners require perspective taking, increased self-awareness, empathy, and are incredibly nuanced and subjective social structures, right? Manners can be very different at home, at school, depending on who you're with, how you address adults, very different. So children are not naturally aware of them. And if they're already a little dysregulated and they need to access things like perspective taking and empathy to activate these manners, those are already offline if they're going into their downstairs brain. The less pressure they feel in social situations, the more confident they will grow to be. This feeling of confidence and security will lead to a natural willingness to engage. And when they are willing to engage, they will be more open to social coaching with manners and they will absorb the social behavior that we model. So what did I do with the six-year-old who ran and hid? I wooed her. (laughs) I sat in the living room with her parents and engaged with them. And then I brought out a novel, exciting game that my kids love called Slam Witch. It's a great stocking stuffer if you're listening to this before the holidays. It's a card game and players take turns making sandwiches. Some of the cards have expected sandwich ingredients like bologna and bread. Other cards have silly ingredients like gummy worms and anchovies. So I pulled out a gummy worm card and said, "Mm, this one is my favorite gummy worms. I think it'd be so cool to have a gummy worm sandwich. But what if, and this is kind of where I tried some silliness, which I'll talk about, I pulled out an anchovy card and then I had an anchovy and gummy sandwich. Oh, so gross. This was all a think aloud that I was doing in front of her parents. At this point, she had wandered out of her room and moved behind her dad. And as I went through the different cards and got a little silly with it, she stood next to her dad And before long, she was sitting down on the floor, engaged with me and playing the game. She moved out of the blue zone and into engagement. Let's talk about the last strategy. And the last strategy is comfort. As simple as comfort sounds, it's more subtle than what you probably have in your head. Remember, the child's threat detection system is in overdrive. So whatever we do, it probably needs to be low and slow that's going to be a reoccurring theme. A simple example of this would be if a child is hiding under a table. This happens in classrooms sometimes. I walk towards the table and I see how close I can get before the child pulls back. So remember, I'm slowing down and I'm observing and reading the child without judgment. Maybe they make a grunt. Maybe they turn away. Maybe they scoot further back to the one side of the table. Then I take a step back and sit. I may turn slightly toward them. I may turn slightly away, depending on what signals they're giving me. I may put my hand by my side and open, like inviting them to take it. I have even in the past sat across the room with my arms by my side. So I'm kneeling with my arms down by my side and out, palms up to gesture my willingness to hug them. Now, I don't do this the first time meeting a child in a classroom. This would be something I do at home with my own kids. (laughs) This allows the child to initiate contact when they're ready and willing. Other comforts for some kids may be turning on a certain song, pulling out a book and starting to look at it. This depends. I've done both with my children at home. One of their comfort books is their baby books. So sometimes when they're total disengagement or dysregulation and I have the capacity in that moment, I'll just sit down and start looking at their baby books. This is something I actually do at bedtime when they're refusing to engage in bedtime. And I just start flipping through these pictures. This woos them in coming over because the baby book is such a comfort to them. This is something we've done for years with them. 
Now, none of these may resonate with your child, the book, the music, physical touch. Your child may prefer a funny approach like the playful tension breakers that I teach in my Get Silly Challenge. Each child will be different and that's why getting to know your child and their preferences and their temperament and attuning to them is so important. So I'll end this episode where we started about attunement. Watching your child is so key. Pausing to notice their response to your bid and adjust yourself based upon their response is how you can figure out what is helpful for them and what is not. If you're unsure how to watch or read them, look at their hands and eyes and face. Listen to their voice. That's my little cheat sheet. Face, hands, voice. (laughs) How fast are they speaking? How loud? What is the tone? Are they speaking at all? If they're blue zone, probably not. Are their eyes sparkly and relaxed while also being alert? Alertness engaged level, not alertness fear level. Or are they wide open and seem stormy or cloudy, alert, scared, right? Or are they tight and squinty, which can be mad? Are their mouths relaxed, maybe even slightly open? Or is their jaw tight? What about a smile? Sometimes the smile can be green zone, engaged, so it's slightly open, right? Bright eyes. That's a different smile than when they're smiling and their teeth are clenched and their jaw is tight and their eyes are slightly narrowed. In one of my regulation workshops, I have pictures of children and I ask parents to guess which is the blue, which is the green, which is the red. There is something that I can explain this all day long, but it's so much more obvious and easier to commit to memory and understand when you see it. It's like baking cookies and checking to see if the cookies are done in the oven. I can give you a list of qualities to look for, but you gain confidence and competency by seeing the cookies, doing it yourself, and making the call each time you bake because you'll get that feedback. Oh, they're underdone. Oh, they're too crispy. Same thing. You've got to just go in and start trying this and your child will be the one to teach you, give you that feedback. So that being said, attuning to your children takes practice and we can't always be 100% attuned to our children because sometimes we're not even attuned to ourselves and we have to attune to ourselves before we can attune to others, right? We can't give what we don't have. While I like to think about this as being one of my strengths, just being able to attune people and read their energy, I can't always do this with all three of my children all the time because I'm human and my own needs and experiences sometimes get in the way. Sometimes I need to prioritize those. So as much as these practices are amazing, also practicing self-compassion is so important and helpful. Well, there you have it. This is my blue zone talk. I've been really looking forward to talking to you about this, about blue tantrums and just being able to understand and connect with your children a little bit better, even when they throw up some behaviors that can be really confusing. If you'd like more information on different playful tension breakers, different ways to connect, different strategies, live Q&As to maybe personalize this information a little bit more, regulation workshops, handouts and charts to help you come up with strategies and also recognize this in your own children, all of that is inside the core community, along with some really awesome parents that are just curious and kind, compassionate and so open to learning more about themselves and their children and strengthening that connection within their family unit. 
You can find out more about our core community by going to www.kayleekukla.com backslash C-O-R core. It's also linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. I will be back next week. Mm-hmm.